This is the Amazing Education Podcast. Powered by the Ames Community School District, I'm your host, Eric Smith. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Katie Swalwell. We're going to have an amazing conversation in this second of two episodes on critical consciousness and how school districts can have conversations about inequities and racism. Dr. Katie Swalwell, this is a part two. Part two. We have never done a part two on (laughs) the Amazing Education Podcast. I'm honored. It (laughs) flies by so fast. It does go fast. And we have so much to talk to. Yeah, Um, you're not asking easy questions. I think that makes it hard. (laughs) Yeah. This is not an easy topic. Mm -mm. I think Mm -mm. which maybe that's what makes it even that much more important that that we have this conversation Mm -hmm. because we could do a part three, I guarantee it. (laughs) Yeah, we could. So if you are just coming on to this episode, I do encourage you to go back one episode and listen to that one first Mm -hmm. because we're going to pick up where we left Mm -hmm. off on this episode and so it's incredibly important that um, I think you kind of get a basis for what we're talking about Mm -hmm. and and the topic is around critical consciousness and and the important reasons why we have these conversations in school districts and we talk about inequities and Mm -hmm. privilege and Mm -hmm. who is benefiting from what Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of this that is happening Mm -hmm. within our buildings within our district and system as a Mm -hmm. whole Mm -hmm. that we don't even know about Mm -hmm. at times Mm -hmm. um well and i think that's an important thing to point out too especially given the work the district's doing i can totally understand why some people who know that the district has been doing this professional development with me and dr spikes around critical consciousness and then feels feels like so why did this messed up thing happen in my school i thought the district was working on this i think there's so this goes so deep and there's so many nooks and crannies Mm -hmm. for inequity and disparities and different um, forces of oppression really to to hide out and make homes in. Um, again, regardless of people's individual intent, that even if you know the district is deeply committed to this, but even with that level of commitment, um, there it takes a long time and effort and energy and attention and just nonstop deliberate focus yeah. to just keep, rooting things out and to keep surfacing ways that all of this is deeply embedded in the life of a school. So it doesn't surprise me at all, um, even years from now, that there will still be issues and still be concerns that are voiced and that are identified. And I I think ideally the district that is critically conscious and equity oriented isn't the district that has zero problems. I mean, we're humans, so I don't think that's likely to happen, but it's a district that responds really beautifully um, and thoughtfully and swiftly when issues arise. Um, And ideally you're, you know, tamping down the number of incidents. Like you don't have as many issues, but there will still be things that pop up. You have new people coming on board. You have, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why um, you won't have like a zero issue institution. Well, growth is not perfect. And I, and Mm -hmm. I'll attribute this to either you or Daniel, but we'll never be, Oh, yeah, a you're fully critically conscious uh, district uh, or uh, myself a person it, it, I so it wish. never ends <laughs> I know I mean it I wish that it came to that point and I think you know especially for people when you're doing the work on your dominant identities mm-hmm. um, which for me would be like my racial identity my racialized identity or um, my social class identity or my citizenship status like my language like I have lots of parts of me that are privileged and advantaged and because they're my advantage I I just feel 
like sometimes like, oh, I have to keep working on this all the time. You have to just so consciously keep forcing yourself to work. And because it's your dominant identity, you can take a break. Yeah. And if it's not, you can never take a break. So I try to remind myself and for people who have a mix of dominant, non-dominant identities, it's kind of nice because you can empathize like, yeah, if it's my non-dominant identity, there's no escape. There's no break. So that level of exhaustion is like, totally different but that to me is the incentive to keep going is that there are even though it is really sometimes super painful sometimes really embarrassing really um difficult work to just constantly be um reflecting and thinking about the ways to engage better with the world that the reward is when it works that you have much more meaningful, authentic relationships with people that you are able to actually see the lifting of a burden off of someone or the removal of an obstacle. Like there's enormous reward in that. Yeah. And so um, even if sometimes it feels like we're pushing, you know, a thousand pounds to go one millimeter, it that millimeter really matters to people yeah. and that, you know, the work has to continue even when we don't necessarily see a huge benefit right away. So... There are a couple layers to growth in this. So there's individual personal growth, mm-hmm. and we all need to be working towards mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a system approach where it's a bunch of people <laughs> having conversations mm-hmm. based on their personal growth and addressing, mm-hmm. you know, you said like policies and practices mm-hmm. and procedures. Mm-hmm. And those things are working in tandem because <laughs> they're all impacting students. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to out myself. So our conversation prior to going live, you know, we were having a conversation and Mm -hmm. I said one of the most cliche things that I just read about yesterday in White Fragility and I outed myself Mm -hmm. and that's part of the process. And so let's talk about one hurdle, which I know you've experienced, and that is White Fragility. I've experienced it it both ways. Like I I have felt it as Mm -hmm. a white person. I still feel it as a white person, even a white person who um, has really consciously committed to engaging in anti-racist work. Um, And then I've been on the other side where I'm trying to work with other fellow white people to kind of get on the anti-racist bandwagon, like get on board uh, and have experienced it as like a facilitator Mm -hmm. in that role. Um, so yeah, it is very real. It, it, so I, what is it? So it's a wife for Julian in a nutshell. I mean, this book you're reading, I think is really fabulous by Robin D'Angelo. Um, it's basically this sense that, and it's based on this idea of any dominant identity and, and white fragility is talking specifically about whiteness mm-hmm. as a, a dominant racialized identity that to have it questioned, to have it critiqued makes people with that identity super uncomfortable mm-hmm. and nervous and anxious and so what that ends up producing um, is when you're trying to have these conversations this sense that we have to cater to the needs of the white person who's uncomfortable Um, and what scholars who are anti-racist and are thinking about white fragility would push back on is to say yeah that can't be what's at the center because whiteness will always want to protect itself Mm -hmm. and so that can't be what we think about so we can't Um, prioritize the discomfort of a white person over the, you know, generational pain and trauma of a person of color, black, indigenous person of color. 
that that has to come first. So it's, you know, very true. And I can speak to this as a white person. It is uncomfortable. It is anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. It is difficult. Um, sometimes I am super embarrassed. Sometimes I'm super ashamed, like yeah. of, of when something has been brought to my attention. Mm -hmm. But that is literally a fraction of any pain or hurt that racism causes yeah. to people of color. And so if you are going to be a white person engaged in anti-racist work, you have to like swallow that truth that, yes, I'm feeling all the feels. Mm -hmm. And it's going to happen and it's going to be really hard. Yep. And part of my obligation is that that's my work. And I'm not going to put that on anybody else to try to make me feel better because that's not what this is all about. And we want to get to that, that baseline of being able to acknowledge that as a white person, mm -hmm. Perhaps my privilege helped get me to this point, mm -hmm. and it is not allowing other people mm -hmm. to succeed that mm -hmm. the way that that they should. And so, um, a couple of the things that they, you know, Robin talks about in her book is how white people have no racial stamina, mm. and and we you pointed out we don't have to you know um, go over it again. We talked about mm -hmm. it some um, in the last episode, mm -hmm. but we've never had to identify necessarily as 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 white mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and that's always mm -hmm. been the norm mm -hmm. you know is, is the way that you put it mm -hmm. and so one of the things that she also goes on and this is very typical is is she talks about intentions and mm -hmm. how intentions somehow trump mm -hmm, actions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah there, so there i think there's two things here the first being this idea of intention and what anti-racist scholars and practitioners would say is you have to um, put intention in its place, that it does have a role in all of this, but it's a very small role, actually, yeah. that what matters most is impact. So if the impact of your words or your actions have, have the effect of reinforcing racial disparities or racist tropes or um, discrimination of any kind or marginalization of any kind, then that's what happened. And you have to take responsibility for that, regardless yeah. of your impact. Mm -hmm. That's like 101 anti-racist work. Yeah. I think it is worthwhile to think about intent if you are part of the team or people who are trying to figure out kind of what to do next. So let's say I'm point. an administrator. You are a teacher in my school. Mm -hmm. Some kind of incident happened that had really negative impacts on students of color in your classroom. And after talking with you, I get that this was not your intent. To the kid, it doesn't matter. Like, they're hurting, yeah. right? So they could probably care less about your intent. That's mm -hmm. my number one focus as the administrator. But my second focus is, like, what next? Yeah. If I can tell that your intent was not to hurt them, then I have a different set of strategies for what to do next with you. Okay. If I talk with you, I'm like, dang, this guy, like, meant to do that. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to have a talk about employment, right? Like, yeah. why would I put you in the position of continuing to hurt kids if you have zero intention of getting better or you don't think there was anything wrong with what you did? Like, I'm going to have a different set of strategies to deal with you based on that. But that's for – that's intent matters only with, like, what happens next for your intervention. If I'm thinking about the hurt done to this kid, I don't need to think about intent at all. So let me flash you back. Um, you are um – at least remotely part of a conversation. We had an incident um, last December, January, is during a basketball game uh -huh. where our someone in our student body 
started making animal sounds, something mm-hmm. that I was told, you know, happens at a lot of different games. And it came to our attention mm-hmm. as a district from multiple different sources. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. was not just one source, it was multiple mm-hmm. different sources mm-hmm. that um, it was heard and received as, as mm-hmm. a racist mm-hmm. chant. Mm-hmm. And I remember going through that process, Superintendent and I, you mm-hmm. were involved and others mm-hmm. were involved about, you know, okay, what do we do mm-hmm. now? And mm-hmm. we did our best to own that because mm-hmm. based on the work that we had done, a lot of the Facebook comments, social media comments, mm-hmm. and actually probably people in person too said, well, that's not what the students meant. Mm-hmm. That's not what they intended. That's not what they meant. Mm-hmm. But that's that versus what was received right. was two very different things. Right. Right. And so maybe use that as, a, as an example. Right. Um, well, and I think in that, so I have a lot of questions about that. First yeah. of all, how does anyone know for sure what the intent was of every single kid who made those noises or who stood by and did nothing to stop it how do we know for sure what their intent was so that's so what white fragility would ask is for the people who rushed to the who their first response to that situation wasn't oh my god how are the kids doing who heard that are they okay like what can we do for them Mm -hmm. their knee-jerk reaction is to defend the kids who were doing it to make sure nothing bad happens to them, right? Like white fragility would ask, why? Why is that the knee-jerk response? Yeah. Um, where is that coming from? Who, Whose needs is that serving? What is that defending and protecting? Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the reflection questions to ask. And again, it's thinking about whose needs to put first, right? Yeah. Um, so that would be something to consider. I think um, ultimately those situations, I think that's a classic example of where regardless of intent, then we do have to deal with the harm done. The other question I would have as a former high school teacher is let's say best case scenario. Best case scenario is there was zero negative intent. That means we have a whole bunch of super ignorant, clueless kids engaging in actions that are clearly going to be interpreted a particular way that they apparently have no idea are going to be interpreted that way. That's best case scenario. That's bad. That's still not great. So what that would call us to do is, wow, we have a major intervention so that our students that we feel this like urge to protect and come to the defense of, we, I would hope, won't want them engaging in the world in ways that are doing all sorts of harm and damage that they, quote, don't intend to do. If that is the case, and that's best case scenario, we have our work cut out for us to make sure that our young people aren't engaging and using any privilege or advantage or dominant identity that they have in reckless ways. And I think that's the real charge. And this is um, back to the previous episode, why we would push against colorblindness, why we would advocate for very clear anti-racist education is we don't want clueless white kids hurting people without, quote, intending to. That is not good. And the only way to counter that is to be very deliberate with them. There's a wonderful book called Raising White Kids by Jen Harvey, who's a professor at Drake University in Mm -hmm. Des Moines, that nails this just point by point by point, thinking specifically about parenting and why it's so important that white parents have very explicit conversations and learning and educational experiences with their kids around these kinds of, of issues and things. And honoring the fact that for families with non-dominant identities, whether that's racialized or religious or national or whatever, they have to have those conversations just for the sake of protecting and helping their kids be strategic in the world. So 
if you are find yourself in the position of your kid having some kind of dominant identity, I would hope you don't want them to be like a bull in a china shop, knocking things over willy-nilly, and then you know saying, oh, yeah, I didn't mean to hurt you. They have the power to hurt people. And so we have to be really thoughtful and deliberate with them about what that power is and how they can leverage it for good and not for damage, for harm. So from a district standpoint, how do you suggest, I mean, and you're experiencing it as, as well working mm-hmm. working with us, where mm-hmm. I think there are a bunch of um, teachers, administrators, staff members who are much closer to where you're at and very mm-hmm. um, passionate in this area. And then you have other teachers who just aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're probably still in... Earlier on in the process. Yeah, very sure. early in the mm-hmm. process. And, and I think that's going to be common in every industry um, because... We all come from different places. Yeah, they all come from different places. Um, It's very in flux. There's no like static, you've scored a 93 and now you're a black belt in this. Like it's constantly shifting. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, um, how do you wade through that? Mm -hmm. As a facilitator? Sure, as a facilitator, but then even advice for for a school district to be able to, to take that on. I mean, in a nutshell, I think the advice that I would have, and this is certainly not just me, I'm thinking also of um, a, a great scholar and practitioner in, in anti-oppressive education is Paul Gorski. He's written a lot about this. I think he's come to speak to Ames before. Yep. Um, and he and I have done some work together. And, and one of the things that we recommend, as well as others, is you, just like you have to center the needs and comfort of the people with non-dominant identities, their needs come first. It's not to say we totally ignore or dismiss the needs of people with dominant identities, but that has to come second. You cannot pace yourself to the most novice person in your institution or your organization, because if you do that, you will never go anywhere. You will never get very far. So the idea is pace yourself where the people are on the cutting edge, the people who are really pushing the conversation and pushing the envelope. That's who you hitch to, that's what you set your pace and agenda to, and then expect everyone else to get on board. And it isn't to say you just leave them to their own devices to try to figure that out. You offer tons of supports and entry points and access points to encourage people to get with the program, Um, but you certainly do not set your agenda to the people who are the most resistant or the least far along in the process and it there's a huge temptation to do that because it feels for people in privileged positions as like the safest way to go or maybe the least uncomfortable way to do it um but it does not do anybody who's hurting in the system any favors and it it again is privileging and centering the needs of the people who are privileged most by the system and who have the least natural incentive to make any changes. So that, I mean, that just is common sense that if that's who you're prioritizing, it shouldn't be a surprise that things don't change because they're the ones who are least likely to actually push for any change. So, So the idea is in an organization, and this is what Dr. Spikes and I have been trying to do with AIMS, is to build up a critical mass of people who can help push that 
even further. So yeah. it isn't just one or two people on the edge and you know they feel lonely and burned out. You're trying to build up a community and a network of solidarity so people can really push things forward. Um, you had mentioned this earlier that there's like individual personal growth and there's mm-hmm. also this like together we're growing as a community and that they both are kind of happening at the same time. And what Daniel often says is that it's an inside out approach. And I think one piece that- That's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You start with yourself and then you think about like mm-hmm. you yourself in relation to others and the systems. Um, one thing I think that can be really hard for some people is, especially for educators that often are super pragmatic and just say, give me what to do on Monday so I can fix this problem. Like help yep. me fix it tomorrow. Yep. Because the vast majority of educators absolutely want to do right by kids, yep. right? So they're like, yep, we hear that there's a problem. I don't really need to know the why, what, whatever. Just tell me what to do differently and I'll do something differently. Yep. And I'll fix it. I'll and I'll fix, fix it. it. Yep. What Daniel and I have said over and over is we can't give people tools without developing this consciousness because the tool itself actually can do damage if you're not doing it yeah. with the right mindset and the right care and well, it's all about the lens exactly. it, it's how you see the world it's exactly. how you see your classroom it's how you yes. see your students yes it's and i i highlighted something here because i didn't want to forget to talk about it but <laughs> um it's ongoing self-awareness absolutely and you can be two weeks into this, you can be two months, two years, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that self-awareness will never end. Right. Um, it has right. to con- always continue. And then you start to see um, not only um, yourself, but you start to see your classroom, you start to see mm-hmm. other classrooms, mm-hmm. you start to see the building. Um, and then beyond that, um, continuing education and mm-hmm. relationship building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you talk about the relationship part? Sure. Or I, the continuing education yeah, part? Yeah, I mean, well, first the continuing part, I think two things that a district can do that really help. One is to make it clear that this personal growth is professional growth. Like doing that personal work isn't a waste of time. It isn't irrelevant. It's foundational. And so making it really clear that that work actually is fundamental to creating a really different way of doing things in a system. So prioritizing that. And secondly, creating a community of relationships, like creating um trust and a willingness to be vulnerable with each other that is incredibly important and if you can't develop that kind of community where people are willing to be honest about their experiences because often let's just take race as one example often white people are like well I have no idea you know I have friends of color and they've never told me that they have problems well that doesn't mean there aren't problems that might mean that they don't trust you to tell them your problems right like this assumption that if I don't hear anything bad nothing bad is happening is a really naive very privileged way of thinking about the world and so it's creating a culture and community where people feel like they can put out on the table the hurts that they have and trust that something will be done with that information that it won't just fall flat that that it's going to matter to people that they're experiencing you know the short end of the stick in the system um the other piece of it is vulnerability on the flip side with anyone who has a dominant identity is you know a feeling that i'm like like you said earlier you were you added yourself like oh god i can't believe i just said that like you and i have a relationship where i think you feel safe saying to me like oh i just stepped in it knowing that i'm going to say like that's great Eric like good job for noticing like good job that I don't read it as like well there's another thing Eric said that was stupid it's like a a sense that um 
that you are wanting to keep growing and that you want that feedback. And I think especially, I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in West Des Moines, Iowa. And I think um, there is, I I will just speak for myself, but I felt very much like the environment I grew up in was fairly conflict averse and like fairly passive aggressive. And, um, you know, when I went out east to teach in Connecticut, the way people interact and if they've got a problem this is my problem either it wasn't couched in like compliment small suggestion compliment you know that there's just regionally really different ways to interact and so i think one thing we um especially in the midwest or in communities or cultures where um conflict or disagreement is seen as negative or a bad thing that it is also about coming to a sense that you know making mistakes seeking out feedback like really wanting constructive criticism and not internalizing it like oh I'm a terrible person but like oh no 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 I need this to be a better person that can take a while to shift and I think a lot of schools have have the operation of I go to my classroom I shut my door maybe once a year someone comes and watches my teaching and that's it shifting that to saying I want people to watch me I want it pointed out what I'm doing that is intentionally or unintentionally hurting certain groups of kids like I really need that information yeah. I want to know and feeling like you have a trusting um, collegial supportive comfortable being vulnerable kind of community and that can take a long time to build and and that um, you know that work has has to happen if you're going to ever have any conversations about any issue um, you know to be able to establish it's not safe space I know this is something scholars say a lot safe space sometimes people interpret as where no one's feelings will be heard or everyone will leave feeling really awesome it's space where you are willing to put yourself out there and we read this article um by a scholar named uh, margaret wheatley it's called willing to be disturbed and it's the sense of like what do you need from everyone else to really put yourself out there and expose your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses and get feedback about that like what makes you feel willing to do that and sometimes even in our own relationships, our friendships, our marriages, that's not easy to do. So there are times where some of this work feels like group therapy a little bit. Like, how are we all going to relate to each other in a way that's constructive? So my first um, professional teaching position was at a school where Mm -hmm. providing as as staff members and teachers, providing feedback was a part of the norm. Mm -hmm. And I will Mm -hmm. tell you that as a 23-year-old teacher getting feedback for the first time, was not like something that I was used to. I mean, for all the reasons that right. you said, but as it happens over time, mm-hmm. it becomes very comfortable mm-hmm. and, and, and normal because mm-hmm. you know where they're coming from with the feedback. And it's, you've it's benefited and from it. I've benefited. Yeah. And then you get to right. a position where you can provide right. feedback. Right. And, and But what it did is that it, it allowed for conversations to happen. Right, right. And I think that's in, incredibly important. It is. And once you go to a system that doesn't have that, it feels really jarring. I mean, just even thinking about really basic things like when you're meeting as a staff, are are people sitting in their cliques and people have their computers out and their phones out and people are half paying attention? Well, yeah, I don't care what we're talking about. It's not going to be that meaningful. But are we sitting in a circle where everyone can see each other and everyone is held accountable and pushed back? and everyone's expected to talk and share and yep. willing to pose questions yep. and you know um we don't expect a resolution another book we use is courageous conversations about race um, by linton and singleton and 
there are four agreements that um, Daniel Spikes and I and lots of other people use. Um, and one of those agreements to do this work and be in community with each other um, is to expect and accept non-closure. You know, that's something else that's yep. hard is sometimes we want everything wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow and we want to leave a meeting and like everyone feel good about everything and I'm not mad at you, you're not mad at me. And I, I think the other piece to untangle is, you know, people need to be able to push against something that you said in a meeting or a policy that we really have to talk about yeah. that we know is doing damage and let's talk about it. Yep. Um, and I think sometimes one of the knee-jerk defensive reactions is, well, you're attacking me. You don't like me as a person or to make it like an interpersonal thing yeah. when really it's it's bigger. You know, the very first thing you asked about with that example of the um, basketball game, I think something that a lot of schools get caught up in is a parent or a student will express hurt, will mm -hmm. express frustration yep. with something that's happening based on their membership in a group that's disadvantaged, right? And they'll have every reason in the world to say like, this isn't right. Yeah. And sometimes what the system expects is for them to make that request in a particular tone of voice, yep. at a particular time, in a particular place, mm -hmm. and to ask nicely. And if you do that, then, then, we maybe. Will, then maybe we'll do something nice. Even though history would show that's not how injustice gets overturned. It's not right. by people just asking nicely enough. Mm -hmm. That's not how it happens. Um, so the when you're in a position of power and you have people um, from the position of marginalization or minoritization trying to make clear to you what's happening, it's easy to get caught up in how they're telling you and to take them to task for that or to focus on that instead of saying like look maybe I don't like that you disrupted this meeting and that's how you're telling me you're upset but that's kind of beside the point right if if I'm going to build trust with you I'm going to hear what you're saying and I'm going to take some action and I'm going to like I'm going to honor what you're saying and validate it even if it came in a way we don't like well, Katie, yeah. I think we have to wrap up. That's part okay. two, we did two parts. <laughs> this is crazy. Is We're going to have to do another at some point. We yeah. can continue to talk about it. Well, um, you'll have Daniel here. So I will, yes. Yes, we will. He's already on the hook, so I'm going to okay. hold him to it. So. <laughs> that will be great. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening or watching this episode of the Amazing Education Podcast. Please subscribe to it, share it, tell everyone about it because we want everyone to be able to hear about not only this, but all of the topics that we talk about. So thank you again. Thanks, Eric. We appreciate it.